Well, welcome everybody. Great to see you. I just glanced at my watch and it said four minutes to seven. Then I glanced at my phone and my phone said seven. So I thought, uh-oh, that's bad. It's just after seven o'clock, correct? So I apologize. You've missed a minute of Bible study already. I will speak extra rapidly. No, I'll just speak in an extra English accent for you to make up for it. Uh, welcome to those of you at home. Uh, I hope those of you at home received an email with this document, minus my scribbles at the top as an attachment. Uh, Those of you here at the tables have got one in front of you. Uh, If you haven't found it yet, it should be in your inboxes, and it will be quite helpful, I think, if you have it open in front of you somehow this evening. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we shall begin and see uh, what the Lord has in store for us this evening. So, let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and therefore the Lord of history, that every thing that exists and every thing that happens is in your hands, brought about by you, and serves your purposes. And our goal, Heavenly Father, is to unravel and explore your purposes in history. So please would you help us to do that, and as we Delve into your word, give us insight and understanding and wisdom that we may know you and your ways with greater depth and clarity and come to love you and serve you more. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the subject of this series of Bible studies, as you know, is exploring eschatology. You've got this handout in front of you. I'm just going to recap where we've come from and remind you what it is we've been doing. Eschatology, just to remind you, is properly understood as the doctrine of history, which is to say it is the theological reflection on what God is doing through time and as well as space. It's normally understood as the doctrine of the last things, the Greek eschatos, last, and of course it includes that, but in order to understand things that are still yet to happen, you've got to understand where we've come from, and we're at an arbitrary point in history, really, if you want to understand any point in history, you have to understand the whole thing. And so the goal of this series then is to understand what God is doing in the whole of the history of the created order. Fairly significant set of questions to answer. Um, And in the first couple of sessions, we looked first at just some fundamental aspects of the relationship between God and his creation. And we noted that Not just the things that exist in creation, but the things that happen, events that take place in creation, are a revelation of the character of God. Everything that God makes reveals him, including history itself. That was session one. And so what that means is you can kind of make some guesses as to the shape of history and the sorts of things that will happen in history just by thinking about what kind of a God God is. God is magnificent and infinite, and merciful, and kind, and powerful, and righteous. And so you'd expect the shape of history to manifest those characteristics, because you've got to reflect him. We then looked, secondly, and this was last week, at the particular things that God describes himself making in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is such a foundational chapter of the Bible. We're going to go there again in a a couple of minutes. Uh, And the reason it's so foundational Well, there's lots of reasons why it's so foundational, but one of the reasons why it's so foundational is because it sets in place a series of concrete things 
water and dry land and light and darkness and people and animals and the heavens and so on and so forth, which when you trace those things through history, you can then see how God is using the symbolism of those things to describe what he's doing. And we noticed that in every single case, although in different ways, all those things that God makes in Genesis 1, as their stories are unfolded through the Bible, they tell a story of the growth of the extent of the kingdom of God. The rule of God grows through history. More and more people are added to it. More and more people come to know him more and more deeply with more and more joy and wonder. So the story of human history traces those things that God has made. What that then does is bring us to the third session where we've got to start asking the how questions. How is it in particular that God is going to actually bring about these things which he's set in train and the nature of which we've been reflecting on so far? How exactly is this magnificent plan going to be fulfilled, session one? How exactly is the kingdom of Christ going to grow? Oops, a bit of a giveaway there, sorry. The kingdom of God, which is kind of the same thing, going to grow in glory and extent through history? And the answer is, through the unfolding of God's covenants with people. History is the story of God's unfolding covenants with people. And I want to explain what a covenant is. Covenant just refers to a relationship. You've all probably heard in one context or another of various covenants in the Bible. And a covenant is a particular kind of relationship where the, the way in which the relationship works is kind of more well-defined than normal. If I just meet Taylor in the street for the first time, uh, and then we find ourselves walking in the same direction towards the same coffee shop, and we're sort of sitting down, and he's doing some work on his laptop, and I'm sort of reading a book or something. We might strike up a friendship, a relationship, but there's nothing really that defines that friendship, tells us what the expectations are. We might meet that coffee shop every week and uh, get to know each other quite well, but it's not like we've made any formal commitments to each other. And if I just didn't show up one week, you're not going to be like, well, where's Steve? It's like, well, he just didn't come. That's okay, right? Many, many relationships are kind of informal. And the way they work isn't particularly well-defined. Covenants are different. Marriage is an example of a covenant. In marriage, a man and a woman, yes, a man and a woman, (laughs) that's what marriage is, make specific, well-defined commitments to each other that they're not supposed to bail out of, you know. Well, you know, I was in love with you, and then you got sick, or then you got old, or then you got poor. No, because you say, um, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, and so on, till death does depart. You make specific, well-defined commitments to one another in marriage. And of course, we know that sometimes those commitments aren't held to, and that's what makes the ending of a marriage so painful. It's because there's something there that both parties committed to at a certain point. Now, that's the kind of relationship that God has with his people. The whole of the stories of, story of the scriptures 
really can be expressed in this way. God is developing a relationship with his people. It's helpful sometimes to think of it as a series of covenant relationships because they are sort of distinct and there are developments from Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and so on. As the story of human history unfolds through the Bible, new covenants are made at different important epochs in history. And you could think of them as new covenants, new relationships, but really they all build on each other. It's one unfolding relationship as well as an unfolding relationship in different chapters. And what we're going to do tonight is to look at the first chapter. The first and decisive chapter of the unfolding series of relationships that God establishes with his people. Now just pause one second before I do any reading. You can see how this is going to set the stage for understanding the future, can you? Because if what we're going to do is we're going to go roughly, Adam, Noah, Moses, uh, whoops, Adam, Noah, Abraham, sorry Abraham, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, probably the restoration period in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, new covenant in Christ, and then onward into the future, well, then we're going to be able to understand the future in the light of the foundation we've built. We don't start by just jumping in and trying to describe, well, what's post-millennialism and what's dispensationalism and what's uh, mid-tribulational pre-millennialism. And, and just we, we, that's, that's starting building a house by putting the shingles on the roof. You can't do that. You've got to lay the foundation, and that's what we're doing. Yeah? And gradually, gradually, patiently, you'll see the house of God's history being built. And by the time we get to the shingles on the roof, it'll be completely obvious where they go. And you'll all be postman without realising it. Anyway, <laughs> that at least is my subversive and um, nice, perfectly transparent aim, isn't it? All right, okay. So we're going to read Genesis 1. Turn back to Genesis 1. Um, and I'm going to read just a couple of short extracts, first from Genesis 1, then from Genesis 2, which highlight different aspects of the relationship or covenant that God establishes with uh, Adam and Eve, our first parents, right back in these early, early days of the history of the world. Very familiar text, uh, Genesis 1.26. You're not going to be surprised to hear me read this. Bear with me a second, just to lubricate something down here. Right, Genesis 1.26, God is speaking to... Uh, well, he's just speaking, probably either intra-Trinitarianly or to the divine council of heavenly beings, but I think more likely than not the former, though I'm not 100% sure on that. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That took place on the sixth day as narrated in Genesis chapter one. We skip forward now to Genesis chapter two. And I'm going to read uh, verse 15 and following. 
And this seems to me to be a, a, another companion narration to the same sort of time, because at the start of 2.15, there's only man and woman is created shortly afterwards. So the, the, you're zooming in, if you like, into day six here. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, shall surely, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or corresponding to him or matching him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the, beast, the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman literally it's built into a woman we might come back to that in a few weeks time and brought her to the man then the man said this at last first have a love song in the bible this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right. Those two passages summarize a great deal of how this covenant or relationship between Adam and Eve on the one hand and God on the other was supposed to work. And I was working on this and just chewing it over and thinking it through. And I was trying to think how to synthesize the different elements that are at work here. And the way I've done it is on this handout. And I'll explain what the big table is at the bottom in a second. But I want to, to point out, firstly, the obvious thing, which I didn't even mention on the, the handout, uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 repeatedly says that man and woman are in the image of God, in the image of God. And I, I started trying to read Meredith Klein, Images of the Spirit. Have you read that, Pastor Neil? Really? Um, it totally blew my mind this afternoon. I started trying to read that, and I got into chapter 1, into chapter 2, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, how much do I not know about this topic? The answer is quite a lot. Um, uh, and I, I thought about... just trying to dig deep into all that kind of detail, the, how Meredith Klein, I'm not sure I agree with everything he's saying there, but how he expounds the idea of the image of God. And then I thought, no, we're going to be getting off track because we're supposed to be talking about eschatology. Maybe we'll come back and do image of God another time. But it is helpful to clarify that in connection with the theme of the image of God, one can identify three so-called ordinances three structures or systems for life that God puts in place, and three offices or roles, three uh, vocations that people are to undertake. And what occurred to me for the first time, this had never occurred to me before, is you'd act, you can actually lay them out in this nice little three-by-three three matrix, which is the mathematician in me comes roaring back to life after many decades of 
dormancy. Um, and what we're really going to be do, doing for the, the whole of this session is to be filling out this matrix in a bit of detail. To summarise, Adam and Eve and their offspring are called to do three things, work, marriage, and rest. And they're called to do them, so to speak, in three ways or with three hats, a priest hat, a king hat, and a prophet hat. And let me just explain briefly where I'm seeing this. And and some of you are familiar with these uh, the offices or these ordinances. The technical terms don't matter so much, but just to think about the, the ordinances, work, marriage, rest. Obviously, Adam is called to work. Yeah, God put him in the garden to work it. Um, we talked at great length on Saturday morning, men, about how uh, Genesis one twenty six and following are a call to work. Fill the earth and subdue it. There's a work element there. So work is one of the things that uh, Adam and Eve are called to do. Then they're called to get married, fill the earth and subdue it. Good luck doing that on your own, Adam. Right? You, you, unless you like, grew really, really, really big, you wouldn't be able to fill the earth just on your own. Best way to fill the earth is to marry and have lots of children and then, then do that for a thousand generations and then see what happens. So marriage then becomes a context within which the uh, earth can be filled, that aspect of God's calling can be uh, undertaken and rest well i didn't actually read this but um chapter 2 verse 1 uh, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day god finished the work that he'd done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he'd done so god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it god rested from all the work that he'd done in creation adam and eve are called not just to work but to not work and they're supposed to follow the pattern of god doing that so you've got to work Marriage, rest, and rest has a particular goal in human life. And then you notice three offices. Now, hands up if you've heard the phrase, the offices of Christ. You heard this? Yeah, some of you heard this phrase. Okay. Um, If we started reading the Bible back from the end, like the New Testament, we would observe that the one in whom all these narratives is fulfilled, Jesus, is called Jesus Christ. Christ is not a surname. Christ is a Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, Moshiach, which means literally anointed one. And there are three types of people anointed under the older covenants, priests, kings, and prophets. And so Jesus, in being called Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is being designated as the one who is the fulfillment of that anointed one office or rather all three of those anointed one offices he's the priest he's the king he's the prophet and you might think well what does that mean well that's what we're here today to find out but you notice that you'll see hints of priestliness in this chapter and hints of kingliness in this chapter and hints of prophetness priestliness for example um, the whole of the environment in which Adam is located is a garden with water and trees and gold and food and God is there which looks alarmingly like the later sanctuaries tabernacle and temple where the priest ministered priest king well look Genesis 1 28 be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion 
over the fish of the sea. Or verse 26, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. So king, take control, take charge. And then prophet. Well, what does God do? What does Adam do in um, the, the section that I highlighted for you in uh, chapter 2? God's like, well, the first thing that's not good in the whole of human history is that Adam is alone. Oh, you've got to fix that. I know. Dogs. Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? Those of you who've got a dog. It's like, but a dog is not a man's best friend, actually. Quite close. I don't know, sheep. Um, nah, they're <laughs> not really much fun to be around. Um, but they, all these animals, I said to speak, brought before Adam, and he names them all. He speaks to them all. You know, there's this big cow with long horns. What should we call that? Mm, how about a long horn? Imaginative. Um, and all of these animals are, are no good, really, uh, until the woman comes along, and the woman is made from Adam's side, and notice what Adam does again, is he speaks. He names all the animals, speaking, prophet. Then he names his wife, Isha. And the word, the word um, woman and man are similar. The word ish, man, and isha are similar in Hebrew. The similarity is kind of similar. If you sort of mean. So we recognize that um, woman and man, woman and man are, are similar because one comes from the other. So in Hebrew as well. Um, so he speaks to and in relation to the creation. You with me? So that matrix then, what we're going to be doing is filling this in in a bit more detail for the next uh, hour or so. And as we're doing so, what we're constructing is a picture of how Adam and Eve were and we are called to pursue the relationship that God established with humanity right at the beginning. Are you with me? Is that making sense? And to do that is to be the image of God. Image of God, there's much more to it than that, but that'll do for starters. Let me press pause for a second. Any questions so far? You all happy? Does that three by three grid make sense to you? Can you see what we're doing? And what we're going to do is we're going to think of the three offices one at a time. We'll think of work first, and then we'll think, okay, we're supposed to work. What does that mean? In what sense is it priestly? In what sense is it kingly? In what sense is it prophetic? And then as we're doing that, what we'll start to do is we'll say, well, this is what Adam was doing, and this will start showing us some things that we ought to be doing. Is that a really cool Bible app that will read the Bible for you? No. All right, okay, okay. So that was me talking on your phone. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll keep quiet. All right, so you're all with me. So let's, let's, let's think about this first uh, aspect of uh, Adam's calling, the calling to work. Now look with me. Um, go back to Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them just sit there and hang out and enjoy all this good stuff that's been made and drink daiquiris and go on vacations and play golf. It's like, well, there's at least one enthusiastic golfer over here. You notice something very strange. At the end of this chapter, it's all described as very good. And yet, 
there's still stuff to do. Something can be perfect, like this flawless world at the end of Genesis 1, and still need something done to it to make it perfecter. What needs to be done? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, The imagery of fish and livestock and birds and so on is obviously meant to give a sense of absolutely everything in creation. And what needs to be done to it or for it? It needs somebody in charge. And we're, we're living in an age where Man's dominion over the world has, has gone off the rails in all kinds of different ways. Um, well, it need not inherently be so. It's possible to rule over the world in, in such a way that you bring out its latent fruitfulness and goodness and wonder and make that good but immature or uncultivated thing into a good mature, cultivated thing. So example, um, you're wandering around with Eve one Monday afternoon through a forest glade and it just suddenly occurs to you that you have nowhere to live. And so what do you do? You're wandering through this beautiful forest, all these wonderful trees. It occurs to you, you could just chop some of those trees down, make them into logs, turn the logs into a house, put a roof on, and so on and so forth. You see what you're doing. You're taking natural beauty and cultivating it, making it beautiful still, but mature. And the example I gave on Saturday, the gentleman we are talking about this, and you know, this, this gold wedding ring, what's happened, viewed in the perspective of the instruction here, is that Men and women have seen beautiful rocks just sitting in the ground with little chunks of glistening yellow metal in them. And they've dug it out of the ground and hammered it and heated it and done stuff to it and reforged it and reformed it and turned it into something which is beautifuler. It's, a, it's cultivated beauty in the form of, in this case, a wedding ring, a gold wedding band. Can you see what Adam is called to do? He's called to work. Would you describe that as priestly, kingly, or prophetic? All that stuff that I was just talking to you about. What? Kingly, yes. Why is it kingly? Mm-hmm. It's providing, yeah. Could you also consider it as a category Yes. Yeah, yeah, you could do. Um, you could think of it as um, priestly. Uh, and I wanted to explore that theme a little bit because one of the really intriguing things about how the New Testament speaks of priestly activity is it does apply that category to um, our work and the fruits of it. But just hold that thought for a second. It's good. Yeah, Anne. Right, very good. 
Right, so one of the distinctive features of the priesthood in, under the Old Covenant is that they're uh, paid through the tithe, so they don't have to be farmers and goldsmiths and farriers and architects and carpenters and so on. They can devote themselves to the work of God in the temple. So the most, most obvious way to understand the, the way in which the, the daily work of digging stuff out of the ground and making it into wedding rings, chopping trees down and building forests, uh, farming and carpentry and everything else is kingly. It's kingly work. But now what's really interesting is that as soon as we start thinking about that in a broader context, it calls into focus priestly labor. Now, what's the, what's the difference between kingly and priestly? Um, probably one way of thinking about it would be to say that priestly work is more self-consciously to do with relating to God. You can think of that um, in contrast with kingly work, where, well, what does the king of Israel do? The king of Israel is responsible for ruling over the people. The priest is responsible for leading worship towards God. What's interesting is that Adam's work is described in priestly terms. Mrs. Reibelin, you're right. Just look with me at um, Genesis 2 again. Now, I hinted at this before. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord planted this garden in Eden. Verse 9. Out of the ground, all these trees sprang up, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's water there, verse 10. The land of Havilah, verse 11, is gold, precious stones, uh, more rivers, water. And if you just press pause there and ask yourself, where in the Bible do you see uh, a garden and trees and gold and water? Where do you see that? temple you do see it in revelation the reason you see it in revelation is because you see everything in revelation the revelation is like a an agglomeration of all of the the narratives and imagery through the whole bible but you see this most uh, prominently and obviously in the in the tabernacle and then later in the temple and the reason why is very simple the tabernacle and the temple is a an architectural garden just flip forward with me to exodus well I'll go to exodus 25 You've got forward 100 pages or so in your Bibles. Uh, in Exodus 25, the, um, the people are receiving contributions, uh, or the, the um, people are bringing, sorry, contributions to build the tabernacle out of, and then the plans for the tabernacle are being given. So they're in the desert on the way from Egypt to Canaan and the instructions are being given well the first thing they've got to build is Ark of the Covenant verse 10 because well the presence of God was there in the garden in Eden we need something to be the the focus of the presence of God in the tabernacle so Ark of the Covenant is where God dwells 
the table for bread. Well, there's food in the garden, fruit to eat and so on. There's food on the table in the tabernacle. Next, there's a lampstand. And just look at the lampstand, uh, Exodus 25, 31. You make a lampstand out of gold. Well, there's gold in the garden, gold in the land of Havilah. And the lampstand shall be made of hammered work. This is Exodus 25, 31. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. So hold on, I thought we were building a lampstand. It's got a stem, flowers, and calyxes. You know what calyxes are? Anybody know what a calyx is? Got any botanists here? I had to look this up, I'm not really botanically minded. A calyx is the little bud, Mrs. Loki, you're going to say. Exactly right. When you've got some, some trees and flowers, before you get blossom or flower, there's a little bud underneath where the flower comes from. These are parts of a plant. So you build this lampstand so that it looks like a plant or a tree. Can you see you're building a replica garden? It's made out of wood. If you look elsewhere, there are um, uh, tapestries with um, trees woven into them and in many other ways a water as well as a little basin for water uh, which has to be made of gold and so on so later on you're going to build a replica garden a tabernacle then a temple where the priests can serve and the reason is because Adam is a priest obviously he's a priest because God is there in the garden with him and so what is man and woman to do well they're working But it's priestly work. It's work which will be accepted by God as an offering, something which is pleasing in his sight. And you can see that in uh, Genesis 2.15. So look at what, what the Lord God says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. Literally, it's to serve it or to be a slave to it and to keep it. And then the Lord gives him these instructions about how to go about his work. Don't eat that tree. You can eat every other tree, just don't eat this one. And it's very intriguing. When you look at the two verbs, the two things that Adam is told to do, work it and keep, or serve and keep, those two verbs appear later in the book of Numbers, again and again and again and again and again, in the descriptions of what the Levites do. The Levites are like temple servants or tabernacle servants. They serve, avad, and they keep, shamar, the sanctuary, the place where God dwells. And that's what Adam's work is. So it's simultaneously doing two things. He is um, working hard to get things under control. You know, we've got this beautiful tangled wilderness of a forest, but my wife wants somewhere to live. <laughs> got all that rock over there in that mountain that's glistening, but I haven't given my wife a wedding ring yet. Work hard. Take, put things under control. We've got all these wild grasses growing in all kinds of different places, but it'd be kind of handy if we had all the barley in one place. So I know, let's dig up all these trees, make a house out of it, and use the empty space to plant seeds in line so they're easier to harvest. And then we'll be able to make bread more easily. You with me? Kingly. And that is priestly. His working in the garden is priestly work. It's the work that 
a man does when he's doing something that God says, that's a delight to me. I'll receive that. And what's really striking is that that's one of the, I'm afraid, somewhat neglected ways in which our work is described. I want to take you to a couple of New Testament texts. Can you turn forward with me? A very, very famous text in this connection, Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, really what's happened is in the the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has uh, re-articulated the gospel that he preaches to the churches wherever he goes. And the familiar bit goes all the way up to the end of chapter 8. Then there's that stuff about the Jewish people in verses 9 to 11 that gets a little bit confusing and tangled. But it's still part of the same... uh, presentation of the gospel in the sense of this is how the rule of Christ is being manifested in the world so that one way or another people from every nation Jew and Gentile will be gathered to Christ and brought to faith in him and so you get to the end of chapter 11 and you have this kind of eruption of praise oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments how inscrutable his ways etc etc from him and through him are all things to him be glory forever amen right God so God is going to be glorified in the world as men and women from every nation come to worship him so what should you do well and the chapter 12 this familiar change of tack in Paul's letters you've gone from more theological to more practical matters chapter 12 verse 1 I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. So what are we supposed to do? Our bodies as living sacrifices, not dead sacrifices. Dead sacrifices like sheep and bulls and goats, you kill them and pour out their blood in sacrifice to atone for sins. This is not what we're doing. We're not atoning for sins. What are we doing then? Our bodies are living sacrifices and they're holy and acceptable to God and this is your spiritual worship and you're all expecting him to go on to describe something you do in church. He doesn't say anything of the sort. Verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, another sacrificial term, and perfect. So he's already saying, Verse 2, the lives of godliness that you live in every domain of your life, not just Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday as well, are your spiritual worship. It's priestly work. You sit down at your desk at whatever o'clock it is on a Monday morning and open up your inbox to find the 478 emails that your colleagues have kindly sent you over the weekend. Or you arrive in the warehouse again and you've got, oh, more chaos has broken out in the factory or whatever it is. Or your school teacher and you arrive and here we go again, Monday morning. Uh, Whatever it is that you're doing is priestly service. the, The sacrificial language is used precisely for that purpose, to highlight that God accepts as a a sweet-smelling aroma, so to speak, what you do. 
And the same language is used elsewhere. Um, let me pick up just a couple of others. Um, turn forward to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 15. And this is, again, it's, I don't think Hebrews is written by Paul. Some people do, but it, it has a, not similar, but it has a, a structure where there's a lot of practical stuff packed in at the end, into chapter 13. And verse 15, through him, that is through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Again, sacrificial language being used, and you're thinking, okay, sacrifice of praise. It sounds like the sort of thing we might do in worship, singing and praising God. Yes, indeed it is. includes that. Through him, then, sorry, verse 15, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So hold on a second. I get... Sacrifice of praise. When I'm in worship on, on the Lord's day and I'm singing, that's a, a sacrifice by which I, it's like a kind of small s sacrifice, by which I praise God. Yes. Well, no, doing good and sharing what you have. Inviting the guy next door around to um, have a meal with you because, yeah, he's kind of a bit lonely, really, and I'm pretty sure he's not been eating properly since his wife died. That's a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And it's all connected to what the author continues to talk about. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. And the more practical, nitty-gritty things of life. You've got the same kinds of things. uh, I won't look up all the references with you, but Philippians 2 and Philippians 4, where um, Paul describes uh, generous giving the, the Philippian church had offered to support his ministry as a sacrifice. It's acceptable to God. So you can see what's happening here. The work that Adam does is kingly. Adam and Eve, I mean to say. Adam and Eve do is kingly, taking control of things. Priestly, it's a, a reflection of and uh, of a relationship with God and it's something that God accepts like he accepts sacrifices and offerings. It's also prophetic. And you notice this already. Just look back with me in Genesis 2. In this prototypical way, Adam is speaking about the created order. And it's a wonderful and fascinating echo of what God did. Remember, this is all part of God, Adam being in the image of God. God spoke, and the things that he spoke about came into being. Well, Adam speaks, and the thing that's in front of him going, <laughs> becomes a sheep. He's like, this thing comes in front of him and says, we'll call that a sheep. So he says, whatever, verse 19, Genesis two nineteen, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And we tend to think of this as, I don't know how you think of it, do it almost seems slightly, um, maybe a little bit artificial, certainly very um, uh, primitive. But actually, this is a profoundly significant part of your work. To name things. I'll give you an illustration. I was helping a friend 
uh, a while ago with an IT project, uh, and it was to build some kind of educational systems and uh, to present kind of teaching videos and so on. And we realized that we didn't have a consistent way of talking about the things that we were doing. We had we were getting confused between lessons and modules and courses and so on and so forth. And that was, we, we needed about four or five well-defined terms so that we could navigate the moderately not very complex systems that we were working with. But your careers, those of you who work in, in especially in, well, not just in um, so-called the knowledge economy, but in manual trades as well and, and skilled labor, there is a tremendously complex technical vocabulary that you absolutely need to do your job. I saw Loyal come in today with, and you've got the kind of, you've got the hands of a man who's been working for about 14 hours, right? Now, if, if I came to your workplace and, and, and I said, okay, I, I'm going to do your job today, you just tell me what to do. And you would start telling me to do things and I'd be like, okay, Loyal, you're going to have to slow down, buddy, because I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why not? Because learning to do that job, a large part of it is learning what the words mean. And then learning how to use the things that have been named in a way which is constructive and not destructive and so on. Are you with me? Words have a really, really powerful effect in ordering the created order. It's, it's most obvious in, um, in education. When you're, when you're teaching children... In many subjects, really, all you're doing is teaching them words and how words relate to each other. And as they understand those words, they understand the world in which we've been put. Words are... uh, It's almost the way in which the world is put into order. And prototypically here, Genesis 2, Adam shows us that by... um, speaking and naming the things that are brought before him. So he's working. And the reason this is so significant is because as he does this, he becomes like God. God is the one who brought this beautiful world into being. And Adam is working on that project as a king. God is the one to whom Adam owes thanks and gratitude and honour. And it's a priestly calling to render to God that worship, that's what worship is in a sense. And God is the one supremely who spoke the world into being and Adam is carrying on what God is doing, speaking. So he's a working priest-king prophet. And as he does so, he is reflecting the image of God. Are you with me? So what are you expecting to do now as sons and daughters of Adam? You're carrying on this project that God is doing. And the daily work that you do, whatever it is, and we could go, we could pick three or four of your careers, quote unquote, or vocations, and try and explore how each of them is kingly, taking control of the world, priestly, something that's pleasing to God, and prophetic, requires words in order to to do it. Can you see how you do that? I'm going to pause there one second. See if you've got any questions, because I've been talking rather a lot. I want you to tell me. Yeah, go ahead now. So I've heard a teacher at Free Fondo talk about 1 Corinthians 11, 
for a man ought not to cover his head to see the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Yeah. And about that being, well, we tend to read it as it is, but it's being read in the same way that you read Holy of Holies, where woman is glory of glory in that mm-hmm. sense. But the reason I even thought about that is because it kind of sounds like what we're describing is that that's the work in which these offices partake in is sort of pulling the holy out of holiness already, the glory out of what's already glory. Uh, yeah, there might be something like that going on. I, I'd not seen the connection with First Corinthians 11. And, um, leaning on that uh, yeah. glory of glory. Yes, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, there's, there's some kind of parallel between man, woman, um, God, Christ, Christ, man, yeah, which might, might be similar. Thank you. Any other questions or comments so far? All right. Oh, yeah. I had another one. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, just because it's kind of topical, unfortunately, right now, could you maybe describe how what we're, we've talked about as prophetic work is markedly different from the sort of say it and claim it hmm. ideology that's pretty prevalent right now? Um, are you thinking of um, in in Christian contexts, a kind of prosperity gospel. Yeah, right. especially so. But yeah. I mean, even in culture, people are like, well, you speak and put vibes into the world, which is yeah. totally Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Many of you will be familiar with the so-called prosperity gospel. Right? And one of you are smiling, right? Um, and there's a, there's a train of thought in those church circles where the idea is if you... If you um, if you speak in a certain way, you're, you're claiming some blessing from God. So I remember having a friend back in England. Um, he said, in all seriousness, I'm trusting God for a new car. That's what he said. And he'd kind of claimed a car in the name of Jesus. Well, quite odd to say. So a couple of thoughts about that. That's, the, the word for that is not trust. The word, is that for, the word for that is self-indulgent gullibility. Um, because you trust promises that God has made, not promises that he hasn't made. And he hasn't promised you a car. So that's not trust. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, you're right, it, it is connected to this prophetic ministry. It's just a terrible distortion of it. Um, it is tremendously hard work to do all of the jobs and vocations that you guys do well, whatever those jobs are. I'm not going to go through all the careers you do, being a mum or working in IT or whatever it is that you're doing. It's tremendously hard work to do it. Hard work to seek to bring order to the world by speaking intelligently about it and by acting in accordance with what has been spoken about it. You know, following the manual for that expensive and complicated saw you use to chop up chunks of steel and so on. That's what prophetic work ministry is. It's not this uh, self-indulgent and uh, really foolish and naive, I, I, I want to claim a thing and expect to get that. God is not a slot machine. Um, so yeah, that, there is a connection there, and, but it's a it's a inverted connection. Thank you.
Uh, yeah, Taylor. Yeah. understandings about the purpose and the uh, intent and goal behind uh, like working mm. not necessarily just the attitude towards it just uh, misunderstandings towards the reason for it in general like the yeah. idea that you're working so that the next generation has an easier life which just feels like a something of a possibility in terms of thinking. yeah I, I I think the well, what you highlighted verse 17, and I'll keep this short because there's a lot here that could take us off track, but um, do it with joy and not with groaning at least implies that you could do it with groaning because it's hard work, right? And providing for those who come after you or those who depend on you or the next generation or your children is, is hard work and therefore there's an exhortation here at least to the leaders in the, a church context, which you could apply in other, other areas to do that hard work joyfully. Yeah. Let me suggest we move on. I want to talk about, we've talked about work, talk about marriage, I want to talk about rest as well. So marriage, think about this second aspect of the, the calling that Adam and Eve had. So they've got to fill the earth and subdue it. This is how, as they do that, that's how God is going to bring about the purposes which we've already thought about in the first couple of sessions. Second, they're going to have to get married. Simple reason is it's going to be quite difficult to fill the world on your own if you're just one guy. And so somebody somewhere is going to have to marry. Now, look, you see this um, in the two texts I highlighted already. Um, Genesis 1, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2.18, it's not good for a man to be alone. Now, we probably should acknowledge just the obvious point straight up. It's not the case that everybody always is married, nor is it actually the case that everybody eventually gets married. And so we don't want to turn this into some kind of uh, moral obligation, like you're sinning because you're not married yet or something. Right? That's, that's a childish and foolish way of thinking about this uh, calling. Truth is... Um, marriage is a good thing, a blessing from God. Uh, God in his providence brings many but not all people into a relationship of this kind, and he does so at different times and in his way. So what we've got to find a way of saying, look, this is, this is a good thing for us as a people to do. Right now it might not be my time to do it. That's okay. Uh, if the opportunity came along, it'd be something I'd be uh, willing to contemplate and so on and so, and so forth. But we, we mustn't, what I don't want to happen is that those of, uh, among us who are not married now start feeling like, okay, well, I'm failing to fulfill God's purposes. I'm such a fail. You know, those, that's kind of childish, immature, and actually quite destructive uh, thinking that 
can sometimes pervade some Christian circles. Same goes for childbearing, actually. Simple fact is, um, there, are, there are married couples who aren't able to have children. And like uh, singleness for those who'd like to be married, childlessness for those who'd like to have children can also be painful. This is, it's a, a situation that ought to be met with compassion, not reproach. One way of thinking about it, actually, is in connection with the doctrine of the body of Christ. As a body, this is a calling which we fulfil. It's not, therefore, the case that we all fulfil it all the time. Nicole and I had three children. Should we have had more? Well, what's the force of that should? I thank God that there's a lady here who's had more children and a lady there who's had even more. Wonderful. I, I don't think that turns a relatively small family or uh, a couple with no children or a single person who's not married and has no children. I don't think that means that they're a failure or is somehow outside the will of God or anything childish like this. If we think of ourselves as a community, between us we've got to do these things. And we can thank God that different people contribute in different ways. Are you with me? Now, how can we view these things in priestly, kingly, prophetic ways. Well, this is where it gets really intriguing. In what sense is marriage priestly? Just turn with me to Ephesians 5 for a second. And let me show you something that you all know. But once you view it in this way, I I hope to scare the wits out of every husband in the room. Ephesians 5, verse 25. I know we're jumping into the middle of a, a long section here, but you're familiar with the section. Certainly all of you who are married should be. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy or with, and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. Just think, just cut off the beginning and the end of that. What's this a description of? This is a description of Christ's priestly work for the church. Christ loved the church, Gave himself up for her. That is to say, he laid down his life. He died. The the Greek word translated gave himself up is a technical term here. And in Romans 4.25 and elsewhere, meaning to give oneself up in death for somebody else. He died for her. Purpose, verse 26, to make her holy. That's what sanctify means. To make her holy in her status. The church, we have a holy status before God. We can come before God in worship and we can live before him and our lives are a a fragrant offering in his sight and our work is a living sacrifice because we're holy but also experientially we're being made more holy by the grace of the spirit who's within us and that's a gift of God in Christ as well having cleansed her by the washing of water through the word so that's is that baptismal imagery or is it preaching because through the word yes obviously because word and sacrament yeah, we're all good Calvinists. 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So that's the goal of Christ's priestly ministry. So one day he will have a bride, think of the book of Revelation now, who is perfected, and that bride is called the church, right? But the whole thing is a description of what Jesus the priest does for us, is it not? And now you stick the beginning and the end on, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Gentlemen, your husbandliness is priestly. And your wife is the holy and beautiful, in this sense, and cleansed and sanctified equivalent of the church but that's what marriage is now just think about this in the in the context of the unfolding of history that we're a part of what kind of a plan for history would result if every husband first submitted himself to christ in faith and repentance and then said, well, my job is to make my wife the most holy and godly and faithful woman I know. That's my job. What's that family going to be like? What are their children going to be like? What, if, you, if you just roll that tape forward through history, what kind of world are we going to have? If Adam had just done this, and Cain and Abel and just done this and passed on to their offspring this glorious model of faithfulness as men we would the world would be very different from what it is now right because truth is that this is not how husbands live and uh, we we typically blunt the force of Ephesians 5 because we it's almost like we can't believe can't quite believe what it says I'm afraid it, it just says it. Your, your wife's holiness is your responsibility in this sense. It's priestly. It's also kingly. Uh, Proverbs 12.4 says, the woman is the crown of her husband. Think about it. Turn, turn to Proverbs 12 verse 4. sort of in the middle of your Bibles. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. How would that be so? How would a... I've been talking far too much this evening. I, maybe I should get somebody else to tell me. How, how is an, an excellent wife... You know where we're going after this, by the way, don't you? Proverbs, excellent wife. But how is an excellent wife the crown of her husband? All the wives don't want to answer because if you're like, that'd be... Like showing off. All the husbands are like, um, if I don't answer, am I in trouble? I don't know. But Pastor Neil, go ahead. If somebody was to walk into this room with a crown on, the first thing that would be noticed would be the crown. Mm. So, she's noticeable. Mm. Her beauty, radiance, and lovely. She adorns yeah. and glorifies that which is good. Wonderful. Yeah, she adorns and glorifies that which is 
the, the one who's wearing it, right? And so, notice the, the kingly resonances of crown. So you, we have this. There has been in. There has been in in our Christian circles a resurgence of um, the idea of Christian masculinity, maleness, manliness in recent years, and I think much of that is is well intentioned, but it's interesting how much of it turns into sort of baptized chest thumping. How little of it is actually. Um, all about making your wife beautiful in the sense of holy, glittering with godliness and purity. And actually, the truth is, if we had a, a more single-minded and a stronger focus on that, we would stand out as men more, like Pastor Neil says. You, you'd notice, wow, that guy, it's like he's wearing a crown. That guy... You've seen his wife. She's amazing. It's uh, right there in the whole of the Song of Songs. Um, Pastor Neil, your hand up again. Somebody had... had oh, Mrs. Bennett, yeah. Go ahead. Um, the sad thing is that Yes, yes. I think you're right. And I, because it, it is. Because if the husband is out for the, the best for his wife and her walk with God and, and for her good, then it's a blessing to, to do yeah. the focus of a husband's care in that way. Yes, I think, I think you're right. And the... We're living in a, an age where uh, the society around us is experimenting with a doctrine of symmetry um, between men and women. Men, and, men are the same as women in every respect. And people have been experimenting with this doctrine since about 1962. And really it's not going great. It really isn't going great. And I don't know how many more generations of... of um, uh, embittered and frustrated women we're going to have to endure and I feel for I feel for the ladies who are sold just even in our culture sold the subtle lies that never never at any point distinguished what their aspirations might healthily be from the aspirations that a man might have now I, don't, I know it's not easy to do if anything, I think it's harder to work out what to do if you're a 16, 17, 18, 20, 25-year-old woman. It's harder to work out. because. But the thing you shouldn't do is pretend you're the same as the guys. Um, the, the text that always leaps out at me, and I was going to jump this later, it kind of fits more under the, the prophet heading, but um, 1 Peter 3, um, the, Scripture doesn't apologise 
uh, for actually describing the way that people are. First Peter 3 um, contains some familiar instructions to wives and, and uh, husbands. And if you, it contains in the first six verses the, the, um, the kind of thing that upsets some ladies. Husbands be subject to your, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That envisages a, an unbelieving culture where a woman gets converted. And um, among all the guys down, all the unbelieving men down the bar who are complaining about their wives, well, there's one guy who's got a Christian wife who's got nothing to complain about because she's just so gracious and, and submissive in that godly, humble way. We might even win him over to Christ, Peter envisages. But verse 7, um, literally, likewise, husbands, live with your wives or perhaps with the women, but your wives, according to knowledge. It's translated in an understanding way in the ESV. But it's literally according to knowledge, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. And people just jump through hoops in outrage at this. Like, are you saying I'm weaker? Like, yes. Like the most fragile and beautiful... uh, crystal glasses are weaker than a saucepan. And if you bring the two together with great force, the crystal glass gets it and the saucepan is like, fine. And the point is not that it's worth less. It's worth more. But somehow we have begged the question in this huge way by saying, well, because you're saying we're weaker, you're saying we're worthless. It's like, no, 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 I didn't say that at all. I'm just, I'm just talking about how we're made by God. And so what, what should a man do? Well, this is prophetic. It's how, how are you going to speak to your wife? Are, are you going to recognise that God has made her so that emotionally... She ought to be able to be more fragile than you because she's got you to look after her and protect her. Also in verse 7, he's saying that the wife is a co-heir. Yes. Back in the day, would have been right. blasphemous. Right. Very, very helpful, Linda. Thank you. I mean, just, just notice that since they're heirs with you or co-heirs of the grace of life. And, and that's... Yeah, so there were religious traditions in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds where um, you you could really only participate if you were a man. So it's not, um, you know, you look down on her because she's weaker and she's worthless and she can't really be part of our religious tradition. (laughs) It's like, no, you care for her because she's fragile and precious, like that crystal uh, wine glass, and a co-heir of all the blessings and privileges that you have, showing honour to her. Um, And that little phrase, in an understanding way, literally according to knowledge, like knowing what it, and you never really know what it's like, but trying to understand what it's like to view the world through your wife's eyes, which requires this understanding and the prophetic work going back the other way. I need... However good a job I'm doing of listening to Nicole, I need to listen more so that I can do the according to knowledge better. I need to know what what does the world look like through your eyes, Nicole? You're there, right? 
Um, Abby isn't well tonight, so they stayed at home. Um, so that I can live with her according to knowledge. You with me? So there's a prophetic element to this. There's a, obviously a priestly element. We talked about that. in, And there's a kingly element. The woman is the crown of her husband. Check out Psalm uh, 31, where the, um, the excellent wife who can find... And then all the descriptions of her, or many of the descriptions, are like the adornment of a king or their echoes of the ministry of King Solomon. And then um, uh, a husband sits in the gates. Well, that's where the rulers of the city sat. And so there are kingly and prophetic and priestly elements of marriage. We haven't talked about children and parents. Um, Again... um, much of what makes the relationship between children and parents work is um, the right speech back and forth. It's a prophetic calling for uh, parents to speak about the ways of the Lord with their children, Deuteronomy 6. Not to exasperate them, to discipline them lovingly. For children not to curse their parents, Exodus 21. We're talking about this in ethics. Um, uh, to respect and honour their parents, to hear what their parents say. There's a receptivity to speech. So, just to zoom back out again, work, priest, king, prophet, marriage, priest, king, prophet. If men and women will work and form families and serve in a faithful, priestly, kingly, prophetic way, this is how... God's plan for the history of the world is supposed to proceed. Time is pressing on. Let me just summarize briefly um, the rest section, which, and it will be briefer, it's easier uh, and simpler. We're not called to work all the time. Uh, the goal of life is not work. Uh, six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And it's set apart particularly for worship and rest. And there's much we could say about this, but it's obviously a priestly calling to not work. It's the day for worship. It's the day when men and women exercise that particular priestly calling. Uh, It's kingly because it's embodying the goal of good kingship. The, the greatest king of Israel, King Solomon, if you look in 1 Kings 4, the way that his reign is described is really, chapter 4 and chapter 10 are kind of, I can't ever figure out which is the high point of the history of Israel, probably chapter 10 just, but chapter 4 describes all the people of Israel at rest and happy and everyone sitting by his own vine and under his own fig tree. And why is that? Well, it's because Solomon's on the throne. What does the name Solomon mean? Shaloma means the one who brings shalom, the one who brings peace. His name means peace. And so the goal of ordering the world rightly in your household is that you can rest. And actually what you're doing is you're getting a glimpse of the destination of the the Sabbath rest that still awaits the people of God. And then obviously... um, uh, rest is prophetic in the sense that, well, when do we gather together to hear the word of God? There is a prophetic element to 
rest as well. Now, um, can you see, I don't know whether doing this three by three matrix was such a good idea, but maybe, maybe it's complicated. Maybe it's helped you because you're sort of scribbling down things in different boxes. I hope it's been helpful. But can you see that we have, to put it another way, three different callings, work, marriage, rest, which are exercised in three different ways, priest, king, prophet. That's how the purposes of God through history are going to be fulfilled. And they're fulfilled through a series of unfolding chapters in a relationship between God and his people, unfolding covenants. Now, what goes, what goes on next, what happens next in chapter 3, is a failure in every single one of these nine boxes. Just to pick a few at random, it's a marital failure. Adam was given the instruction not to eat from that tree. He didn't pass on the instruction to his wife or warn his wife about um, the consequences of what she was about to do. So it's, it's marital, kingly, and prophetic sin. It's obviously marital, priestly sin. He's hardly sanctifying her. Um, it's a failure of work. He's just standing there for a start, not doing anything. But it's obviously priestly work that he's supposed to be doing, but he's doing it wrong. Of every tree in the garden, but not this one. Oh, there we are. It's a failure to rest. It was, the narrative isn't, doesn't seem to be obvious, but it, maybe, it's a, maybe it took place on the first Sabbath. Pastor Neil sort of nodding over there. Maybe that's right. But insofar as rest is uh, consummated in worship, this is shunting God to the bottom of the pile and ignoring his word and following the words of Satan. In every one of those nine boxes, what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is an abject failure. And so that's where we've got to come back from. That's where the Lord has got to rescue this project from. What we'll see in future weeks is that he doesn't abandon the project. He keeps on with it. This will add new layers of complexity to what's required in history. God will now have to do new things, not just to attain what he'd originally specified, but to fix the problems that are created in Genesis chapter 3. But we'll talk about that another time. We have gone our customary three minutes over. It's about time I let you all go. Thank you for your patience. It's good to have you here. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll conclude. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for your grace and kindness in calling us as your people and enlisting us in a project so glorious as this. Please forgive our sins. Strengthen us in your service. We pray as faithful priests and kings and prophets. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, If we can set up the chairs in the usual way for the Oaks tomorrow, that'd be awesome. Many thanks, and I'll see you soon.